This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hi, thank you for tuning in. I'm the rabbi's husband, Mark Gerson, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted to be joined today by Erica Dreyfus, who is a poet, a short story writer, and a professor of writing and of literature. So uh, Erica, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you so much, Mark. It's very exciting to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited because of um, the passage that you chose. Um, of everything to have chosen from um, the Bible uh, broadly defined, uh, you chose what is perhaps among at least... Um, modestly uh, observant homes to very observant homes, probably the most frequently said prayer, certainly measured by the ratio of frequently said to studied, because this is frequently said and said and rarely studied. And this is Asia Chayel, the woman of valor, which we say every Friday night as part of our Shabbat blessings. Yes. And so where does Asia Chayel come from? Do you mean my my awareness of it, or where does it well, come well, from in well, the Bible? Well, both. So let's start. Okay. Well, um, and then let's get to um, why you chose this. Okay. So um, Esha Chayil comes from the book of Proverbs from, um, let's see, it's Proverbs 31 verses 10 to 31. It essentially um, delineates the qualities of, uh, of an ideal woman, a, a woman of valor. And um, as you mentioned, it's it's repeated very frequently in observant homes of various levels of, of observance on Shabbat evenings, on Friday nights, when traditionally the husband um, sings it, it's a poem and it becomes a hymn and he um, sings it to his wife. But it's interesting that you say that it's uh, more often recited than studied because for me, I actually encountered it first through study. Through a return to um, to Torah and Tanakh study, and I can talk a little bit more about about that. We didn't recite it in our home growing up. I wasn't aware of it in that sense. I wish that I had been aware. I wish that my dad had sung it to my mom every week. I think that she certainly deserved it. But uh, no, I did not grow up with that custom. So this is, um, as you said, Erica, from Proverbs 31, and this is actually two-thirds of the Proverbs. So this goes from verses 10 to 31, uh, verses 1 to 9 or something different. And this is the advice of a mother to her son as he's about to become a king. So uh, two-thirds of the advice given by this very wise mother to her son is about, if you want to be a happy man, this is how you got to pick the right wife and here's how to do it. Always listen to one's mother. A, a very wise mother. And uh, it's two-thirds of the, of the advice is to ha- how to conduct yourself as a king is about picking the right wife. Mm-hmm. So uh, talk about why you chose um, Aisha's Chayel, um, what it means to you, and, uh, and then we can just go into the proverb and talk about uh, when we recited on, on Friday nights, uh, what are we actually saying? And, and in my home, um, you know, Erica, you point out you're supposed to sing it. No, I don't sing it because I can't sing the Hebrew. It's also, and this is perhaps a separate subject, it's just, it's, it's a really terrible melody, I think. I mean, it sounds like a funeral dirge, and this is like a beautiful, uplifting poem and uh, I, I think somebody listening to this or otherwise should write an uplifting melody to Asia's Kyle. But but putting that aside, um, I recite it um, from the English because, um, well, because that's what I can do. But also, I think it's such a beautiful and profound poem that uh, 
I want to say it and I want our kids and everyone else around to to hear it and think about it. Yes. Well, it may be helpful for me to to backtrack a little bit and explain a little bit more about how I encountered it. Right. Um, so several years ago, um, you know, I am a writer, as you mentioned, and I enrolled several years ago in a course taught by my friend Amy Gottlieb at the Drisha Institute. It was a course that was titled Jewish Sources Literary Narrative. And we'd meet every week and we would look at something, whether um, sometimes it was the Torah portion of the week and sometimes it was something else um, taken from the Tanakh. And we would study it, study the commentaries about it. And then we would move ahead into creating new writings and interpretations. I mean, it was a very Midrashic oriented kind of Mm. um, class. And so Amy would offer us kind of writing prompts, that were connected with the particular text that we were reading. And I took several iterations of this class. And then when it ended, a few friends that I'd met in the class continued, we we continued meeting as a small group on our own for a few more years. And fortunately, our group included some some very, very well, uh, well Jewishly educated people um, who were able to to lead us in this effort. Um, my main contribution was bringing, you know, chips and things. So, so we we continued doing this. And one week, um, our text was the Eshet Chayil, and we. We worked from um, a source sheet from safaria.org that helped us a lot with that. And we also looked at some other contemporary reworkings because there have been writers um, prior to the effort that I made with my own poem to kind of update um, or personalize this text. Um, And I was really moved by the text itself. I was moved by our, my friend, um, Talia Lieben Yarmish is the one who led our session on this particular text. And in her home, her husband does recite it, chant it for her every week in front of their sons. And I just found it, you know, exceedingly moving. But I should say that We've worked with many texts in a similar way where we, we study them, we look at them, you know, the text itself, we look at commentaries, we discuss, and then we also look at some contemporary updates um, and, and, and uh, poetic reimaginings and so forth. Unfortunately, I can't seem to find um, the prompts that, that led to my particular rewriting of the poem, but it was very um, moving to me in part, not only because of what I said earlier, that I wish that we had been reciting this for my mother all of these years, but because um, I am not married and I don't have children. And so there is really no reason, unless I'm a guest at someone else's Shabbat table, for me to encounter this on a regular basis. And it made me think about, you know, other ways in which the treatment of of women and feminist, you know, reinterpretations that have been more common in recent times play a role. I should say that, you know, Amy's course certainly started with some feminist um, underpinnings and that continued through the work with my, the friends from my class who are all women, as it happened, um, we continue to meet. And I don't consider myself particularly well-schooled in classical feminism and and, fem- and even contemporary feminism. I mean, I consider myself to be a feminist, but the all of the philosophy and, and scholarship behind it is something that I'm also still learning. But, you know, that did all speak to me 
in in various respects. So that's how. Yes. Yeah, because when, when when we um when we think about and uh, and recite uh, this passage each week, it seems to be a quintessential text of uh, female empowerment. And we we have the the woman of valor who um, she seeks wool and flax, so she's a, a hard worker and makes money at her work. She takes that money and becomes an investor. She contemplates a field, so she thinks things over rigorously before making a decision, and then she purchases it. It's an investment property. And she also makes money from that investment property and in that she, from the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. And then she's, uh, she's, uh, stretches forth her hands on the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. So she's self-sufficient. She's charitable. She opens her palm to the poor man and she stretches out her hands to the needy using double language, hands to the poor, uh, palm to the poor, hands to the needy, implying perhaps that she gives both to those who ask and to those who are embarrassed to ask for money. Her husband doesn't seem to do a whole lot. He just sits at the gates with the elders of the land and then praises her. And on top of being a businesswoman, an investor, and the woman who keeps the home, she teaches Torah. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness on her tongue. And she teaches it in precisely the right way in, the, in that the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. And uh, it was Rabbi Hillel, I believe, in the first century um, who forbid strict people from teaching Torah. Because he said that in order to teach and to learn Torah, you have to do it in an atmosphere of love, which she seems to uh, intuit. And then our, her husband does his task, which is just praising her, but she seems to be doing everything else. I will take your word for it on the, the historical, uh, you know, all of the, the Rabbi Hillel and, and that because I, I don't have that background. And I mean, yes, you're right. She's an amazing woman, right? She, she does a lot. And at the same time, um, the text essentially opens with her husband, you know, a woman of valor who can find far beyond pearls her value, her husband's heart trusts in her and he shall lack no fortune. But what if she doesn't have a husband? Does it matter? And then again, toward the end, her children rise and celebrate her and her husband, he praises her. Many daughters have attained valor, but you have surpassed them all. But if there's no husband and no children, then does she get any recognition? If she if she does a lot of the things the the things that are delineated within this text, if she does them on her own, if she does them in settings that aren't about her own children or her husband, does does it is she still a woman of valor? You know, that's sort of the, a question that that I was led to sort of grapple with in my yeah, very interesting question. Um, I think here it's talking about this particular woman, and uh, it was an interesting point that you you uh, bring out at the beginning of at the beginning of it, which is um. A good wife who can find she is more precious than corals. Her husband places his trust in her and only profits thereby. The husband only profits when he can trust his wife, implying that the husband can't profit unless he has a wife who he also trusts and who he uh, prefaces that by saying she's more precious than corals. And this also, I think, the very beginning, which you read, gets to the queen giving the advice to her son, a good wife who can find. She's saying to him, it's hard to do, but here's what you should look for. Right. I mean, if you look at it, what does she not do? I mean, she does seemingly everything. <laughs> she does. She does everything. Yes. She makes she makes a current income. She invests the income to generate wealth. She takes care of the family. She teaches Torah. She's charitable. And she earns the love and gratitude of her husband and her children. And she doesn't sleep much. No, she doesn't sleep much. Uh, no, absolutely. And she doesn't sleep. No, good point. She doesn't sleep much. She's just uh, working in the broadest sense of the word work. I mean, work might not even be the right word, but she's she's uh, working in commerce, in investments, but she's also uh, taking care of the home and the children and the community. I mean, this right. is the this is the woman of valor. Yes. Um, 
And then I'll add that when Dr. Ruth, Dr. Ruth uh, comes for Shabbat most weeks when she's. um, Oh, really? Yeah. When we're in New York and whenever we come to this line, she stops everyone either during the during the Asian file or immediately after and says, um, this is the most erotic line in all of literature. And that is many women have excelled, but you outshine them all. She instructs. Well, doc, far be it from me to question Dr. Ruth. Yes, she instructs that all the men who are at Shabbat dinner, she says, I want you all to say that to your wives with meaning and to go home tonight and try a different position. <laughs> well, tell the next time you see, you'll probably, you may see Dr. Ruth um, before I do, although is she, is she still coming during uh, pandemic times or? No, well, we haven't been in New York City since pandemic times and, she's, uh, um, okay. and, and she, she wouldn't be able to come anyway. She's, um, yeah. Dr. Ruth is the youngest 92 year old in the history of the she's world she's amazing i i know her too she she so, t- so i was gonna say tell her that i say hello because i haven't seen her in quite a while well you have to come over for shabbat the next time we're, we're in new york and she's oh, there. I love that. god willing it'll be soon but uh no she's uh she's a an inspiration for for everyone who's had the opportunity to meet her just kind of uh the living embodiment of a uh, l'chaim you know to life yes no you know absolutely born in 1928 in germany and now she's dr ruth and incredible and she uh she travels like a 25 year old, but um, she I mean, if we all had a fraction of her energy, <laughs> the world would be a better place, a more productive place for sure. Absolutely. In terms of your group, when you studied this as a group, um, when you broke out the, the subgroup from Drisha, which, by the way, is a fantastic place of Jewish learning. I go to their 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 uh, their site and they have some terrific commentary on, on Drisha. Yes. Um, so I imagine in person it must be every bit as good. What was the um, interpretation of the group, particularly from a feminist perspective? So I, I, I was reviewing my records um, because we did this text. We studied this um, about three years ago. We've, we've had many conversations um, before and since. And I honestly can't remember how, you know, detailed our, our discussion got. Um, I know that we did break up and start our own writings. And then we would come together again and share what we had written. And that's when I first drafted this poem that I called A Single Woman of Valor and that was um, initially published online um, and in a newspaper and then was collected into my book, um, which is called Birthright, my first book of poetry that was published last November. So what I do recall is that uh, sort of to continue the story of my of my group, our group has also tried um, to kind of try, we've tried to um, a, a kind of incubator program, a startup to spread this sort of knowledge and approach to text study and writing with friends, with other writers. And we've had a couple of retreats where we've done that. Um, That's also been kind of given a hard stop by the current situation. But um, we, at one of the retreats, um, I read the poem to the group, which again was all women, women from various levels of Jewish observance, um, women of different ages, and they loved the poem. I mean, they sort of loved the way I had updated or personalized the text. And actually, there were a couple of reform rabbis in our group, and they are working on an anthology. Well, it's part anthology, part, I think, scholarly text about the Eshel Chayil. And oh. they asked that they could reprint my poem in the book. So that will ultimately, at some point, be out from CCAR Press. So it's been a very, that's been a very favorable response. I will say that when I was trying to get my poem published, and I don't know if at some point it's helpful for me to read the poem so that listeners will get a, a sense of it, but 
I tried placing it first in various Jewish publications, and there was one that was more toward the Orthodox level of um, of observance that um, initially responded very favorably to the poem, but then considered it more of a pastiche. And I'm assuming they meant pastiche in a more pejorative sense than I. I don't even know what that means. What is pastiche? A pastiche is a kind of imitation or takeoff of, but the way I see it, it's more of exactly. But they called it more of a pastiche. And, and I got the sense that they, they meant that in a negative way. So they, they, but it's fine. The, the poem, you know, has, has found readers nonetheless. But I was a little taken aback by that because, again, you know, there is part of this sense that um, about the, 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 the traditional role that the passage itself plays and traditionals kind of prescribed rules about or you know, the the the, the um, privileging of the married woman, the mother, and that there's something kind of less lesser than for a woman who has not married and had children, which is partially the point of my poem. <laughs> so it was sort of interesting to have it rejected in a more traditional uh, setting that way. No. Um, uh, so if this publication rejected it, did someone accept it? Oh, yes, it was. I think now I'm honest, I should I should know this. This is in the acknowledgments, I'm sure, to my book where it was first published. But that was then ultimately published in in my book. And as I say, it will be republished in the anthology. Of course. Well, um, why don't you read the poem, if that's OK? Do you have it in front of you? Sure. Oh, great. I do. I always have it nearby. No, I have I have my book nearby when I when I'm doing one of these sessions. Okay, so I should say again, the title of the poem is A Single Woman of Valor. And I do have an epigraph to start the poem. And an epigraph, you know, is the, a line of text that kind of introduces a poem. And that line is, a woman of valor who can find. And I cite that that's from Proverbs 31.10. Far beyond pearls is my value. After years of self-doubt and therapy, my heart at last trusts in me. I know I lack no fortune. I repay my good, and sometimes, because like one of my beloved grandmothers, I find it difficult to relinquish grudges, my harm. I seek out wool and linen, preferably cashmere and wrinkle-free, most willingly. I am like a merchant's ships. From afar, I bring my sustenance. I rise while it is still nighttime and brew coffee for my household. I consider and I buy. I work out. I sense that my enterprise is good, so I sleep well at night. I spread out my palms to the poor and extend my hands to the destitute, not literally in most cases, but more typically via tax-deductible contributions and GoFundMe campaigns. I fear not snow for my household, for I live in a large apartment building and the city plows clear the streets. Bedspreads I buy on sale. Land's End and Travelsmith are my clothing. I hope that as I age, smilingly, I will await my last day. I open my mouth with wisdom, or so I believe, and I try mightily to remember my mother's teaching of kindness and to keep it on my tongue and in my emails. I anticipate the needs of my household so that there is always food and bottled water and toilet paper. I do like the bread of idleness though, if by that you mean naps. I have no children to rise and celebrate me and no husband to commend me 
Yet I imagine Solomon himself in agreement that my deeds may still praise at those gates. Beautiful. Thank you. So it's very interesting you have it in poem form because there's the Proverbs, there's the poem form, and then there's the music. And probably 95% of people know it by the music. And I don't know the music at all. Oh, really? Oh, okay. So so then my next question was, do you agree with me that the music, that the melody is terrible and totally inappropriate and it's such a magnificent uh, poem and it should be updated with an upbeat melody, but if you don't know the music. No, I don't. Yeah, it's it's a very like serious, almost kind of funeral-esque, in my opinion, in my untutored, non-musical opinion. Um, But uh, I don't know, we should probably ask some canners. Yeah. So Erica, just uh, moving on uh, from Asus Chayab to um, a very different text. This text is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir, where he tells the story of uh, running in uh, to a man with whom he had served in the war. And he said, uh, this man has saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So he says to this man, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And he said, I've learned two things. He said, one, everyone is much less happy than they seem. And two, there is no such thing as a grown up person. In all of your years as both a writer and educator and on your Jewish journey, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Well, that's really something to ponder. Um, I'm reminded, actually, of this midrash for happiness. I mean, the person who is happy is the one who is happy with what he has. I'm sort of paraphrasing. Um, I've written a little bit about about that, too. And I think that that also took a, a long time. I think there was a time where, for instance, as I, I mean, the, my earlier poem sort of gets back to that. There was a time where it was really difficult for me to be single and not have children. You know, that, that was something that um, impinged on my happiness, but I really like my life. I'm very happy with my life. So that was, that was a lesson to sort of be happy with what you, you have is, is one lesson. Um, and I think the other one is also kind of embedded in all of this, which is to, keep learning. I mean, we're never too old to start or to return to learning, I I should say, and to learn new things and different things and and new things about old subjects and so forth. Um, And so I I would say that's what I would go with. But now I'm I'm really intrigued because I'm going to have to look up this specific Malro text. It was, uh, yeah, it's it's actually the first page of that book, but um, it's such an interesting anti-memoir from 68, but it's such an interesting point you make about always learning, which is such a Jewish imperative, you know, and the Talmud, it says that he who learns a hundred and first time, a passage for the hundred and first time cannot be compared to someone who learned it for the hundredth time, that no matter, mm-hmm. even, even the same passage, you can keep derived. If, it, if it's good literature or good Bible, which are all Bibles good, I mean, then then you could perhaps by the definition of good literature is that you can keep learning new things from the same text every time you confront it. Absolutely. And uh, if you think about it, the worst Jew in the Bible or in the, the worst Jew in the Torah, at least, is Korach, you know, in Kor- Korach's rebellion. And the name Korach means bald. And, you know, what grows on a bald head? Nothing. You know, when you stop learning, you stop growing, and then you're set up to be Korach. Well, let's not, let's not be too negative about baldness. Oh, no, I, well, I'm, I'm, as bald as, uh, I'm as bald as anyone. But, um, but that's the, the analogy that, that is made in, in the text, is that if you stop learning and stop growing, then, then you basically consign yourself to a, a kind of death. So you got to keep learning, keep, lear- keep learning. Yes, that's true. Very true. So exactly what you're saying. Just keep learning, keep growing. And uh, that's one form of life. So uh, thank you for such an interesting discussion of Aisha's Kyle and for, uh, for calling all of our attention to this uh, passage, which is uh, 
so widely read or perhaps sung, but uh, so rarely studied. And for just in, encouraging people to really uh, try to understand the meaning of this great text and um, what the Queen um, was teaching her son when she told it to him and what it might mean for all of us today. Well, thank you. And I will look forward to becoming acquainted with the melody when I am over at Absolutely. your home for Shabbat Absolutely. dinner. God willing soon. <laughs> all right. Okay. God willing. Thank you. Shabbat, Shabbat Shalom. shalom.